We've officially had three weeks of football, learned a lot of new things. There were some exciting games this weekend. A hurricane in the Carolinas cancels a handful of other games, and some new coaches are off to some pretty bad starts. Let's get into it. Okay, so we have now gone three weeks into the season. We're almost one-third of the way through the season. It's kind of hard to believe and accept that, but if you're a fan of some of these struggling teams, that's a good sign because you're just trying to get to the end of the season as soon as possible. I'm in that boat a little bit. As you know, I'm a huge Florida State fan, and we have gotten off to probably the worst start I've ever seen. When I was a kid, there were some years that were pretty bad, but nothing this bad. I mean, Florida State's offensive line is just atrocious, and I'm not going to focus too much on them, obviously, but I just wanted to open up with that to segue into my opening rant, which is going to be about some of these new coaches that aren't faring so well. Obviously, one of them being Willie Taggart at Florida State. You have Chip Kelly at UCLA, Scott Frost at Nebraska. There's some others, but specifically those three are kind of the high-profile ones that are just not doing what people expected them to do. And there's a reason for that on all ends. Part of it is unrealistic expectations, uh, programs just not looking in the mirror and being honest with themselves. I think that's Florida State's biggest issue. And people underestimate how long it might take to change a culture at a school, especially when, you know, maybe the previous staff left that culture a mess. And I think you also have to consider the fact that we hype coaches up a lot more than we should I think all three of the coaches I just named in their own different ways are, I don't want to say overrated because it's not like Chip Kelly's overrated, but you could definitely make the case that Willie Tiger was overrated going into the Florida State job. Scott Frost, I mean, he was at Oregon and then he obviously did a great job at UCF last year, but you know, Tom Herman did a great job at Houston, and it's not like he's been knocking it out of the park for Texas. Obviously, this is only year two, and we're seeing that, you know, it takes time. Good win for Texas this weekend, by the way, over USC. They, they're looking decent, and we'll definitely find out a lot about them when they play TCU this upcoming weekend. But back to the coaches, let's start with Chip Kelly. Chip Kelly is not overrated by my standard, but by the standard a lot of people speak of him as, he's overrated. So not everyone knows this, but I was finishing up my college career at University of Oregon the last couple years, and when they fired Helfrich, a lot of people were like, bring back Chip Kelly, bring back Chip Kelly. Even this year, before they made the move to promote Kristen Ball, 
a lot of people once Willie left were going, oh, Chip Kelly, Chip Kelly, and it's funny because he wasn't available in the Harry Christian Ball. And I know a lot of people that were super upset that Chip Kelly got the UCLA job once his name became available. They, oh, if we could only go back to Chip Kelly. And it's like, that I think would have been a mistake. Chip Kelly did his thing in Oregon. He left. Him coming back to Oregon, I don't think it would have just been all of a sudden Oregon going back to success. Because let's talk about what Chip Kelly did. Chip Kelly runs a certain style of offense that was unique, innovative, and new. At least it was when he first implemented it at Oregon, which started in 2009. And new is the key word because, and I tell Oregon fans this a lot, they had an awesome run. From 2009 to about 2015, Oregon went to a couple Rose Bowls. They won one of them. No, they went to three Rose Bowls, and they won two of them, including a playoff game. They played for two national championship games. They won a Fiesta Bowl. Outside of winning a national title, they pretty much did everything that you can expect a team to do while having you know, a four- to seven-year run. It was a really good run. They won the Pac-12 most all those years, and Chip Kelly gets a lot of credit for that run, as he should. But it's also important to point out that every run in college football happens for a reason. And a lot of it is due to, like, yeah, having great coaching, having great players. But Oregon during those years took advantage of a couple of things. It was a culmination of things coming together. One of them was a good hire with Chip Kelly, bringing an innovative, new, fast-paced offense that no one had ever seen before that was totally catching opponents off guard, especially defenses in the Pac-12. Another component of it was Oregon was able to snag a lot of recruits from California due to the fact that USC was on probation during most of those early Chip Kelly years. And make no mistake, that made an impact. You you know, combine that with the fact that UCLA has just been down as a program for decades now, right? Oregon is this new facilities, you know, the uniform thing. Everything that Oregon was doing during those years, right, was definitely a big thing for recruiting. Now, Chip Kelly still never finished with a top 10 class at Oregon, but he was pulling better athletes into Oregon than had really been there before. I mean, DeAnthony Thomas, who was from... Texas, LaMichael James, who I think also was from Texas, or no, sorry, DeAnthony was from California, but LaMichael James was from Texas, and just different recruits that, you know, were out of the state. Oregon's never been a great state for Division One football recruits that are going to go win championships by any means, but, he, you know, Marcus Mariota from Hawaii, right? These quarterbacks, these, these players that came in and ran this system flawlessly, and if you look at the Oregon Ducks during those years, from 2009 to 2015, they never won a close game outside of the Rose Bowl against Wisconsin and the Civil War in 2009 that was kind of close. If you take away those two games, every game Oregon played during that stretch was a blowout victory or a close defeat. Those, those are literally the only two options, other than the one time they got beat kind of bad by LSU in that kickoff game. But that, that was the, the gist of it. That's what happened to Oregon. They either blew you out, ran away with it in the fourth quarter, and won by 20-plus points, or they lost a close game. Seriously, if you don't believe me, go look up Oregon's schedule from 2009 
to 2015, and all you will see are blowout victories, you know, victories of 15, 20 points or more, or losses that are very close, like, you know, within three to seven point losses. And the reason for that is most of those losses were against teams that had good defenses, um, usually in bowl games or kickoff games, right? Chip Kelly's first year, Boise State beats him in the opener because they had a lot of time to prepare. Chip Kelly, and then the rest of that season, Chip Kelly's offense is running flawlessly. They lose to Stanford, but they you know, win the rest of their games. They go to the Rose Bowl, and they get beat by Ohio State, who had a good defense and a month to get ready for a bowl game. 2010, when they ran the table, went to the national title, pretty much blew everybody out that regular season. No game's really close. This was an Oregon team that averaged like 50 points a game, 40-plus points a game. And then even though they put up a great fight in the national title game against Auburn, they only scored 19 points. So there was a weakness there. They were going to win 9 times out of 10 against any team in the regular season especially if that team was coming to Eugene. But if they were playing in a big bowl game against a team with a good defense, then it was almost more likely that that defense was going to figure it out and beat them. Um, and again, I'm not trying to take anything away from their run. I'm just pointing out you know, certain things happen for a reason. I'll, I'll point out some of Florida State's flaws in their last run um, in a second too. But what I'm trying to mainly point out is that Chip Kelly was not a guy who won games at Oregon due to innovative middle-of-the-game coaching adjustments or, you know, methodically dialing up plays to beat a defense on this play and then, you know, doing the same thing the next play. He he was never that guy. They came in, and if their offense and their system was running perfectly, they were going to put up a lot of points. And if that offense failed then they usually got beat bad. And even when Mark Helfrich took over, it was basically the exact same thing. Mark Helfrich wasn't as good of a leader, it appeared, coaching as Chip Kelly, but the offensive scheme was identical, nothing changed, right? And like I said, it was either that that offense was running flawlessly, and when you're playing the Ducks, you're getting worn out, and they end up running away with the game, or your defense comes in with a great game plan and kind of makes the offense look super sloppy. You know, take the 2013 Stanford game Oregon played. And that's also why I think a lot of people would be frustrated with Oregon fans, you know, like I was, you know, growing up here, is a lot of them would talk about how, yeah, like, we just played so bad. Every time they lost, it was the same story. We just played so bad. It's like, well, no, some teams have a defense, and your offense just relies on catching the opponent off guard from a stanima standpoint and from a sort of trickery standpoint, right? It was this super up-tempo, 90 plays a game. People had never seen that before. And, th and the main point I'm trying to make, bringing this all back to Chip Kelly now at UCLA, is people are like, oh, yeah, you know, you, I don't think UCLA is ever going to be what Oregon was. Maybe if they get the right recruits, but the fact of the matter is Chip Kelly changed college football. Everybody runs an up-tempo, fast-paced offense nowadays. Not everybody runs it to the same strategy Oregon did where it was literally as many plays as possible go 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 like don't let the play clock move at all you know some teams still take their time even though they're in a form of hurry up but everybody spreads the field and hurries it up even Nick Saban runs a little bit of a spread it's an Alabama version of a spread but even Nick Saban runs a little bit of a spread these days and all I'm saying is Chip Kelly's not going to surprise anybody at UCLA and right now, they have no recruits, you know, 
they just were left kind of in shambles. They don't have a lot of talent, and they definitely don't have players that match that system. So it's going to take Chip Kelly a while, and even once he starts getting players, I just don't see him getting to a point where UCLA looks like those Oregon teams. I, I just don't think we're ever going to get to a point where UCLA looks like those Oregon teams. And I think what Willie Taggart's doing at Florida State is almost proof of that. Willie Taggart runs a different sort of scheme than like the Chip Kelly and the, those Oregon teams ran, but it's also very similar in the fact that it's all about tempo, it's all about, you know, up, up pace, you know, when he first got to Tallahassee, his whole thing was lethal simplicity. And obviously the Florida State roster is not as talented as a lot of Florida State fans believed going in, but they are way more talented than UCLA is. I mean, Florida State has had a top five recruiting class every single year that Jimbo Fisher was there from 2010 and on. And last year, Willie came in and, and got Florida State. They still got like, I think it was number 11 or maybe nine, but it was, you know, a, a top 15 class. You know, you know how many schools would just love to have a top 15 class ever, let alone, you know, Florida State has that talent at the skill position. Obviously, their offensive line is terrible, but they have talent. And the reality is, is Willie Tiger comes in, simplifies the offense, and they're doing worse than they were last year. I mean, Florida State had such a bad year last year, but they're doing even worse now. And I think it's because, yeah, you run this simple offense, you basically leave defenses the ability to, you, you kind of put the ball in their court, I feel like, when you run these types of offenses. You're basically saying, okay, defense, you're either going to have a good coordinator, come up with a good scheme, and you guys are going to match that with the physicality and like being able to match our tempo and you're going to shut us down or we're going to beat you, you know, by wearing you out. And it's not 2010 anymore. No one is, wow, look at this crazy offense, you know, these Oregon Ducks and their uniforms and their offense. It's, it's so crazy and innovative. No, now you're just like everybody else. And that's why I was a big, you know, Jimbo Fisher fan is I honestly feel like besides Nick Saban and maybe Urban Meyer, Jimbo was that next coach in line where you're like, okay, he legit gives me a chance to win any game that we play in because he literally on a play-by-play -play basis is dialing up something to beat you with his offense. Yeah, you're huddling, you're going slow. But that's just always how it was. I mean, look at all the comebacks Florida State had from like 2014, that entire season, to that Ole Miss comeback in the 2016 opener and just several other games along that journey. I mean, Florida State was kind of known as the comeback team there for like three or four years. And a huge part of that was, one, they had the talent to do it. They had, you know, especially the years Jameis Winston was there, they had the quarterback play. But it was also because they had Jimbo Fisher. You've never seen these offenses typically come back. If a defense is shutting them down and they're down 25 points going into the fourth quarter, they usually don't turn it on and figure something out. But when you have a coach that can figure things out and make adjustments, those things change. So, and then to couple those two scenarios together, I think similarly, you know, in Nebraska with Scott Frost, you know, he came from that Oregon lineage too of running that offense. He took it to UCF. They had players. They were very good. But a lot of coaches go to these lower-tier schools, have that season where they get that team to a big bowl game, and then they become a hot name. Everybody's all over them. And Urban Meyer kind of started that. You know, He was at Utah when Utah was not in a Power 5 conference. They were 
you know, like a UCF, like a Hawaii in 2007, like these teams. And in 2004, he took them to a Fiesta Bowl, which was unheard of for Utah. He had Alex Smith as his quarterback, and it was like, wow, Urban Meyer became this hot name. And he turned out very successful. He goes to Florida, wins two national titles, and then goes to Ohio State, wins another national title, and just always has his team, his program, playing at a top-notch level. Other than Nick Saban, he's probably, you know, the second-best guy coaching-wise. And when it comes to all the other coaches that have done that same thing, it's not always panned out. I mean, people were acting like Tom Herman was going to be that next guy, and maybe he will be. Maybe Texas wins national titles right now, but it wasn't like he just came in year one. It was successful. And obviously, I talked in the last podcast about how year one is not always the year that these coaches get it, get it all done. But... I'm not really able to say right now what it's going to look like in a couple years for these programs with these coaches. I don't even really know what this rant is really trying to get out or or say about these situations. It's just kind of my observations about you know expectations and fans and coaches and being hyped possibly too much. And it's not always the right fit. There are only, I think, a handful of coaches that could go to any program under any circumstance, under any roster, and have pretty instant success. I think Nick Saban's one of those. I think Urban Meyer's one of those. But other than those two guys, I mean, there's no coach that is perfect at every school. I mean, there are coaches that could go to one school, win a lot of games, it's going to fit perfectly for them, and they could go to another school and not fare as well. I think the program you're at matters. You don't just get to come into any program unless you are a Nick Saban who's one of a kind and just become a national title contender. You know, Nick Saban could probably take any program, even like a bottom, middle-of-the-pack Power 5 program and have them competing for playoffs within five years. And if they're a top-tier program, probably within a year or two. Not every coach can, can say that. You know, there are some coaches that go to one school and do very well. They go to another school, they do poorly. They go to another school after that and they do well again. The school you're at matters. Some coaches aren't good fits for certain schools. For example, Willie Taggart got the Florida State job, I think, based on the prediction that he's a perfect fit and the ceiling could be extremely high, right? He was looked at as a pretty good up-and-coming coach. And then you couple that with the fact that he's a big-time recruiter. That's the one thing he's proven he can do anywhere is recruit his ass off. And then you combine that with the fact that he was a big Florida State fan growing up. He understands Florida State culture. I think the Florida State staff was basically like, you know, he could be a perfect fit here. But it's not like Willie Taggart was a hot name for any job that opened up. It's not like if Georgia opened up tomorrow they would have been considering Willie Taggart and taking him from Oregon. Only Florida State was. And maybe that was a mistake. Maybe it pans out and works out well. We'll just have to wait and see. But anyway, enough about the programs that aren't doing well and kind of the boring stuff. Let's talk about how great this last weekend was. And boy, were we blessed with a couple of really good football games. I want to start off with the LSU-Auburn game, which was... Just a great game to watch, and I think the SEC really needed this game. You had two teams competing at a high-caliber you know, playoff level, and Alabama wasn't involved in the game, so that's nice. LSU looks good. 
Auburn looks good. And if you look at what LSU's accomplished now, beating two top 10 teams in three weeks, just you got to tip your hat to them. That's incredible, especially considering the fact that a lot of people, including myself, really wrote them off preseason. Most people saw them ranked at 25 and thought that was too high. And most people thought going into the season that Ed Orgeron was going to be fired after this week because he probably was going to have these two losses to Miami and Auburn and that the LSU restless fan base was going to be fed up just like when Les Miles was out on his last year. But it's been the complete opposite. They got their quarterback. He's not a great quarterback, but he's good enough. Joe Burrow, he's the perfect fit for them right now. And they play great defense. They look like the traditional LSU teams we've seen the last two decades. And Auburn's a great team too, but LSU just played a little bit better. And this game was just a really competitive back-and-forth SEC battle, offense, defense, special teams, just the whole thing, the typical you know SEC matchup between two top 10 teams. And the SEC really needed that because they had kind of been lacking that game outside of Alabama and somebody recently. And now, you know, Georgia's coming along and it looks like LSU, Auburn are, are all right there. The SEC is back. I myself had kind of been downplaying the SEC because it looked, you know, for a couple of years there that it was kind of Alabama and everybody else. But Gus Malzahn has Auburn in great shape, even though they just lost. Like, they're not out of it by any means. LSU looks great right now, although they have a really tough road ahead. But they, they're looking good. They're in better shape, way better shape right now than anybody thought they would be. So they're looking good. Obviously, Georgia looks amazing. So you definitely have four, maybe five playoff contenders in the SEC if you include Mississippi State. And you can't really say that about the Big Ten right now based on perception. Now, I still think that technically the Big Ten has all of its traditional teams alive for the playoff. At this point, starting with Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, Michigan State, and Wisconsin, all those teams are still alive for the playoff. I know that Wisconsin just got upset by BYU. I know that Michigan State lost to Arizona State. I know that Michigan already has a loss. But going forward, all of those teams have the opportunity to win the rest of the games on their schedule, and then they would be in the playoff. You know, I, I keep hearing like, oh, you know, Wisconsin, like, I don't know if that's a loss they can survive. What does that mean, guys? Does that mean you're saying that based on that loss, I don't see them winning out? Because that I understand. If you're saying, based on the way they played in that BYU game, I don't see them running the table going forward. That argument makes sense, but no one defines that when they say they, they say that loss was unforgivable. It looks like Wisconsin's out of the playoff. I've, I've literally heard that a lot since Saturday. And it's like, no, if Wisconsin ran the table, went 11-1, and and won the Big Ten Championship game, they are going to the playoff. I mean, what is going on here? And you hear so much talk already about, oh, the SEC, you know, they, they'll probably get two teams in again. No, they probably won't. That's very hard to do. And if Alabama goes 11-1 and this year without a conference championship game, or it doesn't have to be Alabama, it could be Auburn, it could be LSU, any of those teams, Georgia, they're not going to get in over a one-loss conference champion from another conference or a Notre Dame that's 11-1 and one or better. It's not going to happen. 
Last year, an 11-1 Alabama team that didn't play in the SEC championship game got in, and that was kind of controversial. But the reason they got in is because when it came to that fourth spot, you had to decide between a 10-2 USC team, Pac-12 champion, a 10-2 Ohio State team, Big Ten champion, or an 11-1 Alabama team that didn't play in their conference championship game and the committee decided to give Alabama the benefit of the doubt. All, none, none of those teams deserved it. I mean, if you really think about it, Alabama on paper did not deserve to be in the playoff last year. And I don't. And before everybody says, well, they won the title, so that proved they deserved to be there. No, what, what you do once you're in the playoff doesn't necessarily reflect if you deserved to be there in the first place. Alabama lost their last game and then benefited from not going to the SEC championship game. And most every year, you would not get in the playoff if that happened. But it just so happened that that same year, the other two contenders for the fourth spot had two losses, including a blowout. USC got blown out by Notre Dame last year. And Ohio State got their butts whooped by Iowa. And they had two losses, and they were conference champions. And the committee has shown now through the last two years that they're not going to put a two-loss team that has been blown out over a one-loss team that didn't even play for the conference championship. And that's a debate people have whether that's fair or not, but that's the perception. But this year, if every conference champion is 11-1 and and Alabama... Or, again, it doesn't have to be Alabama. It could be any SEC team. If they're also 11-1 but don't have the conference champion, they're not getting in over other conference champions that have the same record. I don't care if they're from the SEC or if it just really looks like they're the second best team behind the SEC champion. It's not going to happen. And if you throw Notre Dame in that mix, it's really not going to happen. But... Getting back to the game, this LSU-Auburn game was very good, and I'm really excited to see what LSU can do going forward. They're definitely a contender. Another thing that irks me is I literally heard on one of my favorite podcasts, I think it was the 24-7 Sports Podcast, or no, no, sorry, I think it was actually Campus Conversations from ESPN, and several of the guys were like, yeah, like LSU's very good, but they're not a contender because of their schedule. And it's like, dude, you can be a contender, and then you can predict, though, that I don't see them getting in, though, because of their schedule, but that doesn't mean they're not a contender, right? Everyone's like, yeah, LSU's a, not a contender, but Clemson's a contender, and they're basing it all on schedule. Right now, LSU looks just as good as Clemson, if not better, so they're a contender. Now, just because Clemson has an easier path to the playoff and most likely LSU is going to slip up just because of their schedule doesn't mean you stop using the word contender when you define LSU. They are a contender. They have just as much talent as any team in the top 10 right now, which means they're a contender. Just because you can predict that they might have a couple losses. like that That's not what rankings are about. Rankings are not predicting who's going to finish the season with a certain record based on their schedule. Rankings are based on who's the best team right now. Alabama's ranked number one because if you were to have anybody play Alabama, Alabama would be favored in that game. Therefore, they're number one. And you take the same philosophy going down the rest of the list, right? So 
LSU is definitely a contender. Auburn's still a contender, even though they lost. Auburn has plenty of opportunities to get back in. They had that huge win over Washington. And they have a chance to get back in this thing with the games they have remaining on their schedule. So going on to the other huge game that was fun to watch, Ohio State-TCU. Again, another great game. TCU got off to kind of the fast start here. They scored more touchdowns early. They were up 14-10. to 10. Ohio State had to come back um, and make it more competitive in the second half. And gosh, Dwayne Haskins just looks really good throwing the football for Ohio State. It seems like everybody talks about, you know, Alabama. Oh, now that they finally have a, a passing quarterback and this is changing everything. Well, you could say the same thing about Ohio State. Ohio State, just like Alabama, the last, you know, five to seven years has had a buttload of talent, you know, five-star and four-star players on all over the field. But Ohio State hasn't really had a big-time passing quarterback, I mean, outside of Cardell Jones, but his run was so short, he played in those three games the year they won the title, which is why they won the title. And then he did start the next year, but there was the controversy with Barrett, and then he just left for the NFL, and then you had Barrett for two more years. And he was good, a great leader, a great runner, but he had his limitations passing the ball. Ohio State now has a quarterback that, you know, Dwayne Haskins looks like he's been starting for Ohio State for two years. He looks as comfortable as a Trace McSorley is. They're not the same type of player, but you know what I mean? Like, they just, he's there. He's arrived. He can throw the ball, and he makes big plays for Ohio State. He has opened up their offensive playbook to really shine. I talked about in my season preview how they just have weapons out the yang to distribute the ball to, and now they have a quarterback who's very good at distributing the ball to those players. Ohio State's defense also looks very good. And honestly, though, TCU showed in this game that they're more of a contender than I thought. Even though they lost this game, I didn't know who was going to be able to compete with Oklahoma for the Big 12, and definitely TCU is a team that can do it. They played Ohio State very tough, very hard, and I can definitely see them taking it to a team like Oklahoma, definitely a West Virginia. And the Big 12 showed that they have some contenders outside of Oklahoma. I mean, I've been on kind of high in West Virginia even during the offseason. I think they're a team that can challenge Oklahoma, especially because it looks like they are playing a little bit of defense this year, which is what they needed to complement, you know, Will Greer, who's a great quarterback in their high-flying offense. Oklahoma State had a big win against Boise State. That was another fun game to watch. Oklahoma State kind of ended up running away with it, but they looked really good because Boise State's a good team. They're no cakewalk they are a team that puts up a fight that you got to play hard against and Oklahoma State did and they beat them and they ended up beating them handily so I think going through the Big 12 Oklahoma Oklahoma State West Virginia and TCU are all teams that have a really good chance to win the Big 12 and if someone can do that without losing more than one game you have yourself a playoff contender right there and even Texas is looking decent I know USC's not anything special right now but texas looked very good against usc it looks like they're finally turning the corner and i wouldn't be shocked if they went on a on a big run here i don't see them winning out necessarily but i can definitely see them getting through the the rest of their games with only maybe one or two more losses and uh and texas going nine and three that would be significant improvement for tom herman under year two and would show that they're on the right direction they're recruiting well and that would be a big time move for texas and i just kind of going off topic here, I would love to see Texas back um, as one of the top you know, 10, 15 programs right now in college football. That would be nice to see. 
and would just be better for the Big 12 and probably just better for college football. So that would be that would be cool. Hopefully that can happen over the next several years. Oklahoma played at Iowa State. That was actually a more competitive game than people thought. Now remember Iowa State beat Oklahoma last year. So Oklahoma was coming out for revenge and Ohio Iowa State played really good in this game. I was very impressed with Oklahoma and part of that is due to the fact that I was very impressed with how Iowa State came out and played. Every time you thought Oklahoma was about to pull away, Iowa State would find a way to score again and get the game back within a touchdown. But either way, Oklahoma looks very good. I think Oklahoma's defense looks better than it did last year. They're playing with more intensity. And the offense hasn't really skipped a beat. I mean, Kyler Murray is playing just as well as Baker Mayfield did. And the Oklahoma offense looks great. Now, I think Oklahoma will start to slip up when adversity hits because adversity is going to hit you at some point during the season. And that's where I think you might start to see the differences between Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray. Up to this point, and obviously he hasn't been given the opportunity, but up to this point, Kyler Murray has not showed that he's the leader that Baker Mayfield was. You know, Baker Mayfield was that type of guy that just, he wanted to be challenged. He got off to the fact that, oh, the other team scored and we got to go out there and match it. You know, he wanted that. And obviously Kyler Murray's a big competitor too, but we just haven't seen that same ferocious competitiveness that we've seen out of Baker Mayfield you know, the last three seasons that he was at Oklahoma. And Kyler Murray's going to be given opportunities to show that he has that same intensity. It just doesn't seem right now that he, he is quite the same player, but regardless, Oklahoma's in a very good spot. They're putting up big numbers. Their offense looks great. Really excited for that Oklahoma TCU game coming up this weekend. That's going to be a big indicator. Or sorry, that's not this weekend. My bad. TCU's playing Texas. But when Oklahoma does play, a TCU, a Texas, or an Oklahoma State, or West Virginia. Very excited to see what's going to happen because Iowa State was a good opponent for Oklahoma, but it's it's kind of going to be a couple more weeks before Oklahoma's playing a real contender, a real challenge. Their schedule's kind of backloaded, but it's going to be exciting to see them go up against a legit team and see how they fare against another you know top fifteen, top ten type of type of team. And so. Moving on to some of the matchups coming up this week, one of them I'm pretty excited and looking forward to is the Texas A&M-Alabama game. This will be the second time that Jimbo Fisher has gone up against Nick Saban. He did it last year in the opener for Florida State against Alabama, which was a pretty close competitive game until late in the third quarter when Alabama started to make some plays on defense and force some turnovers and ended up winning, I think, 24-7. to But it was still a pretty good game. Texas A&M looked really good against Clemson, and I'm interested to see if Jimbo Fisher can play close in this game. I think Alabama gets the win, but Alabama's kind of outside of the year in 2012 when Johnny Menzel beat Alabama. There's been a lot of hype going into these you know, Texas A&M-Alabama games since then, and Alabama has just dominated them for the most part. So I'd be really interested to see this Saturday if Jimbo can keep it close, keep it competitive against Alabama. And if he does, then Texas A&M honestly should go up in the rankings if this game is very close because they will have played two of the best teams in college football right now in Clemson and Alabama. And yeah, they're probably going to lose those games because those two teams are the best teams for a reason. But if this game is like really competitive, really close, then watch out for the rest of the games that Texas A&M plays. If they can almost beat Alabama then they definitely have a good chance to beat an Auburn, to beat an LSU, 
they would be right on caliber and right on par with those other SEC West teams not named Alabama. So really excited for that game, see how it goes. I really feel like it's going to at least be close for a while just because, you know, Jimbo knows how to do that. He knows how to be that coach that keeps it close. Even if you have superior talent to him, he knows how to keep it close. Now, the other coach is Nick Saban, so Nick Saban knows how to beat pretty much anybody. But that's going to be a fun game. The only other really big-time matchup I'm excited for, even though I don't think it's going to be that close, is Oregon-Stanford. I've actually seen the Ducks up close and personal the last couple weeks. I've been working for the Pac-12 Network, and I've been on the field for the last two Duck games. And I'm kind of worried about Oregon's defense and what their offense is going to do against a real a real defense like Stanford has. So I think Stanford's going to go in there, and I think it's going to be really close at first, but I think Stanford's going to pull away in the second half and is going to end up winning by at least a couple of touchdowns, and I think they're going to hold the Ducks to limited points. I think it's going to be a fairly low-scoring game. And I don't see the Ducks' defense holding off Bryce Love for four quarters. Based on the way they've played, I just don't see that happening. I mean, we don't know much about Oregon because they haven't. They played Bowling Green, Portland State, and San Jose State, which are all just very, very bad teams. But just based on what I've seen, I don't think their defense is ready to contain Bryce Love for four quarters, especially if Stanford is able to actually move the ball through the air, which they've shown that they, they're doing well. K.J. Costello is throwing the ball pretty well. He's completing passes to the unlimited amount of Stanford tight ends that Stanford just pumps out every year, just these reliable tight ends that are always at Stanford all the time. And I really think that they're going to move the ball in the Oregon defense. I think the Oregon defense is a little soft and that they're going to be physically outmanned by Stanford this weekend. We'll see what happens. The game is in Eugene, which is a really tough place for people to go. So it's going to be competitive, but I just think Stanford's the better team right now. And the other game that I'm excited about is TCU-Texas. I, I blabbed up earlier and said TCU-Oklahoma, but correct myself because, yeah, it's actually TCU-Texas this weekend. And this is exciting because we know Ohio State's legit, or we're pretty sure. Again, like I've said in many other times on the show, what happens in September oftentimes is never an indicator of what ends up happening in November. So I guess there's an outside chance that Ohio State isn't that good, and neither was TCU, and some of these September games have just been flukes. But for the most part, we know most likely that Ohio State is very legit, other than Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, the next best team, or team right on par with those schools, looks like Ohio State right now. And if that's the case, then TCU is very legit, because we just saw TCU pretty much go wire to wire with Ohio State. And they just they just couldn't quite pull it off in the end, but they had their chances. Honestly, I, I could tell Gary Patterson, usually after a game like that, he even when he loses, he looks happy still because he's like, wow, we're, you know, we're TCU, we've put up a good fight. But TCU has moved to the point as a program where they walk off that field against Ohio State and, and they're not proud because they lost. They're not looking at themselves as like, oh, we're TCU, and the fact that we took it, you know, down to the wire with Ohio State, like, we're proud of that. No, like, you could tell Gary Patterson felt like he could have won that game if a couple things would have gone his way and a couple mistakes weren't made. So TCU is very legit right now, and Texas has momentum. So what I'm 
interested to see in this game is if Texas can play TCU super tough. And TCU's got to be careful because one of the scariest things in college football is playing a super emotional big-time football game at home. TCU wasn't at home, but they were in Dallas. And then having to go play another team that's pretty good right after that, but you don't look at them the same. And what I mean by that is, like, I'm sure TCU went in the Ohio State game, like, we're playing Ohio State. That's like playing Alabama or, like, you know, Clemson. This is one of those teams. This is, like, a national championship type of game. And it felt like that because it was played in, in Jerry World in Dallas. So they got all hyped up for that game. They need to respect Texas the same way or Texas can come in there and beat them. And that's what's scary. Texas is now going to treat TCU as like an Ohio State or one of those teams. And they're coming off momentum beating USC. So they're going to come and bring it hard. And it's going to be a real good test to see, can TCU put this Ohio State loss, as bad as it hurts, in the rearview mirror and now look at Texas with the same respect? Or are they going to fall victim to what most teams do fall victim to and come into this game going, okay, well, we just almost beat Ohio State. So in theory, we definitely should be able to beat Texas. That is poison right there. When Nick Saban, you know, talks about poison, team poison, media poison, that's probably the main thing he's referring to is when you play those epic games, you get beat very often afterwards. I mean, Alabama is a good example of that. In 2012, when they beat LSU, that was like the big hyped game, two top five, top 10 teams playing. That was the game A.J. McCarron was crying afterwards, right? All excited because they won this crazy game at LSU. Well, then the next week they played Texas A&M, who was a good team with Johnny Menzel, but they weren't LSU or Alabama good. But when you play that emotional game the week before and then you come back home or on the road, wherever you go, it's very easy to lose that game, especially when, in that case, Texas A&M is coming in and they're bringing it. They wanted to beat Bama that day bad, and they did, and Johnny Manziel pretty much won his Heisman because of the moments he had in that game. As a Florida State fan, I can attest to, outside of the 2013 year when we won the title and some of the following years, we had a pretty big history of beating Clemson at home and then losing to NC State the next week on the road. That happened in 2010, and that happened in 2012. And in 2012, we were like number three in the nation, had just beat Clemson at home, an emotional victory. And then a couple weeks later, you know, you go to NC State, and you're thinking in your head, oh, we should beat NC State, we should beat NC State. Oh, but guess what? It's a Thursday night, and NC State is basically playing their Super Bowl. And your guys are tired, and they're not taking them as seriously. And then next thing you know, upset. That's how these upsets happen. If these players were robots and just always played at the peak performance of their ability, then there'd be no point in even having the season because then the most talented roster would just win every year. So probably Alabama would have even more national championships than they have. And one of the reasons Nick Saban is such a good coach is because he rarely ever lets that letdown happen with his team. Every other program cannot say that. Ohio State has not won national championships to the same caliber as, as Alabama since Urban Meyer's been there because even Urban Meyer lets his teams fall victim to that sometimes. In 2015, 
Ohio State was probably on paper the most talented team in the country, yet their offense struggled that year compared to the year before, and some of that was the quarterback controversy. And then even though Michigan State was no sleeper game, that was a huge game that year, Ohio State just, they lost that game and they looked sloppy doing it. Next thing you know, Michigan State is getting their butt kicked in the playoff to Alabama, and Ohio State's whooping up on Notre Dame in the Fiesta Bowl. And on paper, talent-wise, skilled players, Ohio State was the best team in the country that year, one of the most loaded rosters ever, and they couldn't win the national title, even though they did the year before, dealing with a bunch of adversity. So these mental things matter. Last year, Ohio State would have put up a good fight in the playoff, and they couldn't get there because even though they beat Penn State, guess what happened the next week? They went to Iowa and got beat and got beat bad. So I'm really interested to see how Texas plays if they're ready to beat a legit team like TCU. And I'm also really interested to see if TCU is legit enough to respect Texas the same way they respected Ohio State and get that done. And we'll learn a lot from that game, a lot from that game. So I'm really excited going forward. Um, that's it for the show today. I'm really going to try and get another episode in before Friday. It's tough. Um, as far as my personal life goes right now, I've been given some really great opportunities working with the Pac-12 Network. That's why I've been at the last two Oregon Duck games. I got to run a sideline camera. As a lot of you know, I'm a videographer and really getting involved in that industry. So that's been fun. That's been awesome. I'm actually going to be at the Oregon State-Arizona game working for Pac-12 Network this weekend. My sister lives down in Corvallis. She goes to Oregon State, so I'll get to stay with her, see her this weekend. That'll be fun. Looking forward to that, but also looking forward to you know the rest of college football and what happens there. So anyways, thanks for listening, guys, and I will see you either hopefully once this week, and if not, I'll see you next week, and we'll recap the games. Mm-hmm.